Can you open the show for us? Uh, sure. This is Open for Business, a branded podcast from eBay and Gimlet Creative about how to build a business from the ground up. I'm John Henry, and as you just heard, this is Open for Business. Today on the show, we're tackling a big, broad topic that's changing the future of work and entrepreneurship as we know it, the gig economy. So that is voiceover actor Red Horrocks reading the intro to today's show. And this is what she does. People hire Red to read their scripts, and she makes her living almost entirely through gigs she gets online, which, as she just said, is the subject of this, our sixth and final episode of this season of Open for Business. So how much would that all cost me? All of that, that would have cost you $5. What? <laughs> Today on the show, we're gonna be talking about a trend that's helping shape the American economy as a whole and redefining what it means to be an entrepreneur, the gig economy. Let's start here. What do we even mean when we say the gig economy? I guess the way that I think about it is the gig economy is the opportunity to do small one-off jobs through some sort of an online platform. So I think that's how most people would define the gig economy. That's Diane Whitmore-Schanzenbach. Diane runs the Hamilton Project at the Brookings Institution, where she's spent a lot of time thinking about how this economic trend is changing the way people work. And what Diane is saying here is that for many Americans, Work no longer means going to the same place every day and getting a paycheck at the end of two weeks. Work happens when you want it to happen or when you need it to happen. It can even happen after your day job is done. So if you've ever requested an Uber or rented an apartment on Airbnb or hired someone to run an errand on TaskRabbit or sold anything on eBay, you are part of this phenomenon. You're contributing to what some people say is the biggest transformation to the American economy since the Industrial Revolution. So what are the official stats about the gig economy? What data has the U.S. government been collecting on this phenomenon? Well, since 2005, not much. In fact, zero data. The government stopped collecting official data on this right then, before the takeoff of the online gig economy. And so it's actually been really hard to figure out how many people participate in that today. The best data that we do have about who's participating in the gig economy as a whole actually comes from Chase Bank. They took a random anonymous sample of a million Chase customers, and here's what they found. The number of people who earned income through the gig economy grew 47 times over between 2012 and 2015. That's equivalent to 10.3 million people, more than three times the number of cashiers in this country, it's about four times the number of waiters and waitresses. It's more than six times the number of elementary school teachers. What I can say as an economist is having that kind of opportunity to earn a little bit of extra money in a very flexible manner makes workers better off. Especially, you know, in a time where incomes have been stagnant, wage growth has been anemic. And so this is helping a lot of people make ends meet. It's created a market, a very efficient, quick-to-serve market, in a place where there didn't used to be one. And that's how the economy changes. In this episode, we'll explore the past, present, and future of the gig economy. 
we'll tell two stories of entrepreneurs who are thriving on this new frontier of entrepreneurship. And we'll talk about what every business owner can learn from their experiences, starting with the woman we heard at the top. Hi there, my name is Red Horrocks and I'll record any voiceover for you in either an authentic British or an American accent. Red is literally the voice of the gig economy. And as we said at the top, she's a voiceover artist and her platform of choice is called Fiverr. Red reads scripts for all kinds of companies. You love your truck. You use it to get around town and move things from time to time. But usually your truck bed is empty. Well, how does making a few bucks and helping people in your community sound? Say you're a music startup that needs a promo. Red will do that for you. Welcome to Riff.com, an open source music community. Or you want a jazzy, outgoing message when people call your office? Red's got you covered. Thanks for calling Fleetio. If you know your party's extension, you may dial it at any time. Red is one of Fiverr's top-rated sellers. She has more than 14,000 reviews and an average rating of five stars, the highest you can get on the site. And Fiverr is what economists like Diane call a labor platform, meaning people use it to sell their services. Uber and TaskRabbit count as labor platforms too. On Fiverr, freelancers post their services for a base rate of just five bucks. On average, Red makes about $20 per voiceover gig. The biggest job she's ever had was for $2,500. For Red, Fiverr has more than paid off. She now makes about $150,000 a year through the site. But three years ago, she'd never even heard of Fiverr. Back then, Red had a regular job. Well, sort of. She ran a circus. Uh, the show that I worked on had 65 performers. It's a pretty intense job. Basically, we'd be in charge of handling all of the performers, handling schedules, handling training of performers, uh, and also running the show at night. So we're the ones calling all the calls, making sure that everything's safe, everything's moving in the right place, everyone's where they need to be. Red's a natural performer. Since college, she knew she had a special talent for voiceovers. But it was always a side job something she could do in her off hours to make some extra cash. That is, until she found Fiverr and started to build a reputation for herself on the site. She was landing more and more jobs. And even though she was working a ton on top of her day job, she was really happy. I started spending a lot more time doing voiceovers at home and my hours were getting really long compared to work. But I found that even though it was, you know, going to be one in the morning when I got home, I was really looking forward to doing the voiceover work. And I would, you know, check my, my voiceover work email while I was still at work. And it was one of those things where it just kind of, it made me feel really empowered and it made me feel like I had no, no limits on me. And I really, really enjoyed it. So how did Red transform those late-night voiceover recording sessions into a full-time business? The answer is very, very slowly. Gradually, Red started to think she might be able to quit her day job. And after a year and a half of methodical planning and working both jobs at once, Red took the plunge into Fiverr full-time. And I did a lot of budgeting and ran the numbers a lot of times and ended up giving four months' notice uh, wow. in order to go ahead and leave my job because I was still terrified that it would all fall apart. I wanted to give enough notice where I could actually switch to working solely off my voiceover income and banking my paycheck from the circus Got it. to make sure that I was good, to make sure that I could do it. And that's lesson number one. Start slowly. If you can... 
make sure you have the runway to do it before you take that plunge. And the good news is that on-demand work allows you the flexibility to take your time because you can work when and how much you want while keeping your day job. So you can experiment with what works best for you. You may never actually quit your day job and that's fine. It's actually normal. The vast majority of people in the gig economy keep their day jobs. On labor platforms like Fiverr, the average person makes a third of their living through the gig economy. Red makes 90% of her income this way. And Red knew she'd made the right decision on the very first day after she finally quit her job at the circus. She still remembers the date. It was September 29th, 2014. I was having lunch with a friend because I was like, oh, I don't have to go to work. I'm going to go have lunch with a friend. <laughs> right. And I was sitting in the restaurant and we were having a beer in the afternoon because I didn't have to go to work. And uh, my phone rings and it's a studio that I'd uh, auditioned for a couple of times. And they were like, hey, we've got a project for you. Can you be here in half an hour? And I'm like, yes, yes, I can. I'm going to get a glass of water and I'm going to put my beer away and I'm going to hightail it over there. And great. So that was literally the first day. And wow. if I'd have been working at the circus, I wouldn't have been able to take the job. Wow. So that was very, that was very rewarding. It's like an immediate like, OK, we're good. We can do this. Since that day, Red has bought her own home, and she's been able to support her boyfriend while he goes back to school full-time. Actually, they just got married. They're going on their honeymoon, and Red doesn't have to ask anyone for vacation time. But when starting a business, not everyone has the luxury to take their time. I don't know if I'd be considered having skills. I didn't... I didn't graduate from college. I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't come out of a career ever. Mm -hmm. I kind of got married really young. And so that's a lot of the reason why I ended up divorced was I was just very young. That's Corey Osteen. In 2003, Corey's life turned upside down when her marriage fell apart. At the time, she had two small kids to take care of. It was horrible. It was really bad. I never anticipated ever getting divorced. It's not something I ever expected. And, and I, was, I never thought I was going to be anything but a stay-at-home mom. That's what I always wanted to be. So I had to make money. I just had to, to find a way. And that way was eBay. Corey knew about eBay because she used it to look for name brand kids clothes she couldn't afford at full price, which back then most people didn't do. Remember, this was 13 years ago, eons in internet time. People were still getting used to the whole idea of buying and selling stuff online. I was finding nice clothes, and also they were new and used. And so since I saw the same brand that I was looking for, I started selling my kids old clothes because I didn't, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And when I started, I wasn't starting selling on eBay as trying to create a business. Right. I was just trying to, just trying to make ends meet. Selling her kids clothes online was helping Corey stay afloat after the divorce. But she had an inventory problem. She ran out of clothes to sell. Once the hand-me-downs were gone, she kept her store going with whatever she could find. And it was at this point when lightning struck for Corey. The first items Corey ever bought online were a dress and a matching hat for her two-year-old daughter. This was before she'd sold anything herself, back when she was just a customer looking for a deal. The outfit arrived at Corey's house wrapped in tissue paper with a pretty ribbon and a handwritten thank you note. And the memory of this personal and beautiful packaging stuck with Corey. 
When she started her own eBay store, she wanted to use that same kind of packaging for her customers. But there was a problem. The packaging was, that was the one thing that I couldn't find. Like any savvy entrepreneur, Corey identified this gap in the market and she seized the business opportunity. She figured if she, an eBay seller, couldn't find the packaging she wanted to ship her stuff, other business owners probably had that same problem. And she was right. So Corey pivoted away from selling children's clothes to selling shipping and packaging supplies. To make that pivot, she did tons of research. She relied on connections she already had. And then eventually, she started designing her own personalized decorative packaging that she sells today. It was a hugely profitable move. Corey had hit on a need that lots of other entrepreneurs selling online also had. And so it wasn't long before her new business took off. It's kind of exciting. Like people are buying your stuff. And I think it helped me get through just a really difficult time because it helped take my mind off of, you know, what I was going through. At first it was just me. And then it, you know, it wasn't too long before I had someone helping me pack. Like, you know, before the internet. Who would have thought back then that that was something that could happen? It's exciting that you could just go pull something out of your closet and make money. And just a regular person with no business expertise, without any, you know, without having the funding or or the knowledge or having, you know, go get a loan from a bank or write up a business plan. You know, just a regular person can just throw some whatever they have up online and really instantly turn around and make money off of it. And this brings us to lesson two. Whether you're selling online or offline, your best move is to find your niche. Ask yourself, what is the thing that no one else has noticed but you, or that you are especially equipped to provide? This question is so important for any entrepreneur starting a business that we usually spend a whole week on it at the startup accelerator I run, Co-Found Harlem. And you know what I like to tell those guys? There's riches in niches. Case in point. Corey. Today, her business, You Pack and Ship, is a multi-million dollar packaging company with over 34,000 positive reviews on eBay in the last year alone. Eventually, Corey got remarried and her husband, Bo, helps her run You Pack and Ship. They have 13 employees in two locations, one in California and one in South Carolina, near their summer home. Today, Corey is running her company exactly the way she wants to. I'm still at home with the kids right. to this day right. because I, was not, I couldn't leave them. That was the most important thing to me Absolutely. was being home with them. And then when something comes up, say that the kids have an event or a doctor's appointment or something, I mean, I can just go. Corey falls into the capital platform part of the gig economy. A capital platform lets you sell or lease goods instead of services. eBay is a capital platform, so is Airbnb. Capital platforms make up the majority of the gig economy. According to that Chase study, roughly three-fourths of people who made money in the gig economy have done so on capital platforms. The stories we've heard so far are about entrepreneurs who've been wildly successful on gig economy platforms. Red on Fiverr and Corey on eBay. And they've done that like any other business owner, by building relationships with their customers. Except in the gig economy, you build those relationships through reviews and ratings. Online, 
Those reviews and ratings are your reputation. We're going to spend some time here talking about this because every provider in the gig economy is trying to figure out how to deliver service that gets the best reviews. And every platform is trying to figure out a fair way to deal with those reviews. Because a lot of times in this online economy, there are customers reviewing people who they'll likely never meet in person. When you have an anonymous person connecting with another anonymous person and they're relying on each other, it's important that they can find some way to trust each other. And so right from the start, um, our founders came up with this concept of feedback. And it was really the original uh, mechanism for helping people understand how to trust each other in that, in that marketplace's environment. That is Laura Chambers, Vice President of Consumer Selling at eBay. Although over the years, she's held lots of jobs there. Manager of, uh, hang on, I'm going to have to think this up. Uh, <laughs> manager of corporate strategy, um, general manager of PayPal Mobile. Chief but throughout her time at eBay, uh, Laura's been working to perfect their system for feedback. Sale, head of university programs, vice president of trust, and vice president of consumer selling. And because this is so tricky, they've been working on this for nearly 20 years, since 1997, when eBay was pioneering how to let customers leave feedback for sellers online. It was absolutely revolutionary at the time. I mean, no one had a marketplace um, and certainly no one had developed a, a feedback system before. You know, if you think about the time, people used to send each other cash in envelopes. Like that's how they did payments. So this was always a marketplace that was built on trust. Ratings are the key to building that trust. And therefore, they determine whether people can make a living through these platforms online. Because virtually every gig economy platform is designed around giving customers the opportunity to rate their experience. And that's great if you're a customer or if you're a provider with a top score. It's instant credibility. But what if you're not? What if you get a terrible review? Did that one-star review actually reflect the service you provided? Or was your customer just having a bad day? Or did they not like something vague about you? Right now, there's no good way to know. This is such a big issue that the academics we talk to have a name for it. It's called data Darwinism. So if you're a leader in this new economy, an Uber or a Lyft, a TaskRabbit or an eBay, how do you deal with the problem of potentially biased reviews? Laura says eBay is tackling this issue head on and trying to come up with some industry best practices. There are so many great gig economies coming up and so much great innovation. So we love connecting with folks that are doing it differently to learn about it. Um, and so we went out and we spoke to everyone. We spoke to, you know, the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world and Etsy's and Airbnb's and all those guys. And here's one thing they talked about in those meetings. These platforms have the ability to weigh different kinds of feedback. For instance, eBay used to let subjective reviews like what was my overall experience with the seller play a much bigger role in the seller standing on the site. What our sellers felt was that that wasn't very fair to them because it is, those are actually fairly um, subjective and they're not always accurate. And, and sometimes there can be some, uh, some bad behavior that goes into negative reviews and so forth. So we completely changed our standards program to just look at much more objective data. Objective data, like did you receive your items on time or did your driver drop you off at the right address? Did your tasker make the delivery you requested? Platforms have the power to collect all of this objective data plus the subjective reviews and decide how much weight to give which kinds of feedback. So your overall rating is a mix between facts and feelings. And this is important because even Laura knows how easy it is to make a mistake when leaving a review. 
I remember the first piece of feedback that I gave and I got it completely wrong. I bought a microwave and arrived and it was blue and I was furious. And so I left um, feedback for the seller saying, you know, I bought a silver microwave and it arrived blue and obviously I was mad. And the, uh, the seller very politely replied to let me know that that was the protective cover uh, for the microwave and I could just peel it off. So my first, <laughs> my first experience of leaving feedback was a little bit of an embarrassing one, but you know, that's kind of what happens. It's how we learn and uh, <laughs> that's how the marketplace gets better. So that's the first one I remember leaving. So what's your takeaway from that? Uh, look, people are human. I think that that's basically it, right? When you have a marketplace, you have a human interacting with another human and we all do our best and we all assume the best, but sometimes we make mistakes. And this brings us to our final lesson. The gig economy runs online, but it's still a human to human interaction. And humans have bad days. Sometimes a provider will make a mistake on the job. Sometimes a customer will leave a review that isn't fair. That happens. But As a gig economy provider, you have to do everything you can to make sure that your overall feedback is as positive as possible, so one or two human mistakes won't make or break you. The good news is, these gig economy platforms are also trying to do their part, so that customers have their say, and providers are protected. So, to recap today's lessons about the gig economy, lesson number one. Start slowly. And in the gig economy, you have the option to do that. You can build your business at your own pace. Lesson number two, find your niche. Or as I like to say, there's riches in niches. This is true online and off, but online, there are lower barriers to entry, which means it's easier to pivot when you find that niche. Lesson number three, ratings matter. And in order to succeed in the gig economy, you have to take them seriously, whether you're a customer or a provider. And remember, these are human-to-human interactions. There are people on the other side of those stars. Special thanks to Chris Hotch, Gary Henderson, Arun Sandararajan, Kingsley Obi, Gabby Perez, Bianca Cado, Nafrija Singletary, Maggie Mistel, Rebecca Germain, and Libby Reader. We couldn't have made this episode without all of your insights. And thank you to all of our listeners. It's been so great hearing from so many of you. Let us know what you think of the show on iTunes and Google Play. Just like on the gig economy, reviews matter. They help new listeners discover the show. Open for Business is a branded podcast from eBay and Gimlet Creative. I'm John Henry. Thanks for listening.